pick up our story of the Passion Week on the 11th day of Nisan, over 2,000 years ago. It's Jesus' final week before the resurrection, and we saw this last week that Palm Sunday as well as Monday were two incredibly busy days. Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it showed both symbolic as well as sacrificial meanings. He symbolically revealed himself as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, and he sacrificially offered himself as the Father's Passover lamb. Now, those two days also had two incredible displays of worship, Mary anointing Jesus' feet in Bethany, as well as the people singing Hosanna as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. So when the Pharisees heard the people shouting Hosanna, they, they told Jesus, you need to rebuke your disciples, to which he replied, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. We were reminded this last week that worship is happening. It might be one person bringing a sacrificial gift before God, or it might be a crowd of people singing his praises. But rest assured, our God is being worshiped. So Palm Sunday and Monday are events that could come under two different categories, worship and selection, worship and selection. Jesus was worshiped where he went, and he was also the Father's selection as the Passover lamb. Tuesday's events could be aligned under two headings as well, inspection and teaching. And I'm going to come back to explain both of those in just a few moments. So before we jump into all of the events that are happening on Tuesday of the Passion Week, we need to know that there are multiple stories that are converging at the same time. There is the story of redemption that goes all the way back to creation. There's the story of Jesus' earthly life that began with his physical birth. There's the story of Passover that began with the exodus of God's people out of Egypt. And there's also multiple stories of individual events that are happening on this particular day within the Passion Week. But the big story comes alive when you see all of the other ones coming together and converging in one place. When you see these individual stories converging, it'll help you understand how it is that Jesus arrived to the praises of people on Palm Sunday. And then less than a week later, the crowds are shouting, crucify him. How does he go from a position of praise to mocking? How does he go from adoration to contempt? How does he go from being incredibly loved to being unbelievably hated inside of a few days? It is the events of Tuesday that help us understand that progression. So we're going to pray in just a moment, and we are going to talk about Tuesday of the Passion Week. Now, as we get into this, you'll notice up on our screen, we have worship is happening day one. This is Palm Sunday. Now, this idea of worship happening, that's something that actually is a part of both of these days. But to help people say distinct parts of the day, worship is happening, but also on that Monday, you have the lamb has been selected. Today, we're talking about Tuesday. 
the events of Tuesday, what's going to happen is each week you all come in, the main idea from the previous week is now going to be up on the screen. I want you all to watch the progression of this week going all the way up to Resurrection Sunday whenever we bring this particular series to an end, but we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. So we're going to have a word of prayer, and I hope you can write 100 miles an hour because we got a lot of stuff. And if you cannot write that fast, that's okay. That's why it's all on video. You can go back and take your time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, may your spirit continue to move in this service. May your spirit walk us into truth. May light bulbs of understanding go off in our minds, but God, may we understand again It's not just about information. It's about intimacy with Christ. May we understand that it all points back to how we might know Jesus more. Well, thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are three major events that occur after sunrise on Tuesday. All three events are linked together. All three events set the stage for what's happening within the rest of the week. So we have the cursing of the fig tree, we have the cleansing of the temple, and we're also going to discuss the challenging of Jesus' authority. So we start with the first of those, that is the cursing of the fig tree. This is found in Mark's gospel, chapter number 11, verses 12 through 14. You're going to see that Mark 11 lines all three of these major events up in beautiful fashion. So here's what's happening within this first scene. As Jesus leaves Bethany on Tuesday morning, the Bible says he's hungry. He sees a fig tree and it's full of leaves, and he goes over to the tree in order to find some food. Now, normally, a fig tree would produce green figs early in the spring before you would have the actual leaves begin to sprout on the tree. So I've got an image I want you to see so that you can visualize this. You'll see this is an actual fig tree. In this fig tree, you'll see that there's little green balls. That would be the early figs that are coming along. Look up at the very top and you'll begin to see that there's leaves, a little bit of the shape of a leaf, but it's still not fully out. At this particular point in spring, the first thing that would show up on that branch would be those little green figs. Now I've got a second image I want you to see. This is what we begin to see a little bit more of when a fig tree has figs that are, that are ripened, they're, they're ready. You'll see the leaves are out. You see the, the fruit is larger, it's now changed colors, it's ripening at this particular point. So in this particular story, the Bible tells us that he goes to this tree and he sees the leaves, but he doesn't find any fruit. This is gonna be extremely important. Did you know in an interesting way, how he's, how he's describing this, this fig tree is acting hypocritical. It gave the outward appearance of having fruit, but the leaves were hiding the fact it had no fruit. So Jesus does something that's very uncharacteristic of his ministry. The text tells us in chapter 11, verse 14, he cursed the tree and he said, may no one ever eat your fruit again. It is the only place in the gospels that Jesus curses something. The disciples, they heard Jesus make the statement. They just didn't think much of it. The next day though, they come back through and they see that that tree, the one he had cursed, It says it was withered and it was dead. 
And it's at that point that they remembered what Jesus said. That's found over in chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. We will come back to that story this next week. So now we go to the next major event. Jesus cleanses the temple. This is found in chapter 11, verses 15 through 26. So Jesus entered the temple, and he turned over the tables, and he ran the money changers out. I need you to know this is not just a random act of anger. It's not like he just came from cursing the fig tree. He's in a really bad mood, steps into the temple, gets mad at them, and flips some tables. That is not it at all. Did you all know this is not even the first time he flipped tables? The first time he did it was at the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2, verse 15. That time it was premeditated. He made a whip and he walked in. This time, he flips the tables again. The problem here is about design and deception. Design and deception. Each part of the temple had a specific design, and each part of the temple had a specific group intended to be there. If you've been a part of our Sunday night verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians, you'll know we just covered this description of the temple as a part of the Apostle Paul's writings. For those of you who are part of that, you'll know where we're going. Others, you'll help understand how this piece begins to break down based upon the temple. So the outermost courts of the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. Anyone was allowed to be in this place. But the purpose of that area was a place of prayer and preparation. People who were searching for God, people who were needing hope, people who wanted to understand what is the God of Israel all about? They could go to the court of Gentiles and from that place they could observe, they could watch, they could pray as the people of God gathered together. That was a place, it was the court of the Gentiles. So you came from the outermost court and you came in one. It's now the court of women. Jewish women were congregating in this area. They were only allowed to go beyond it if they had a sacrifice to offer. Come in from there. There's now the court of Israel. This was for any Jewish male. And then inside of that, there's called the court of the priest. So each court had a function. Each court had an intended crowd. And each court had penalties for not following the rules. The temple had design. Now somebody might say, well, where's the deception part coming in? Every Jew had to offer a temple tax each year. That temple tax was a half a shekel. It would be the equivalent of about $5 for us today. But that particular tax could only be paid in Jewish or in Tyrian coins. So the money changers were set up outside. And many times for an exorbitant commission, they would exchange foreign currency so that people could acquire the right coins, the right money to pay their temple tax. Now, put this setting in place again. Remember, this is the week of Passover. So you got Jewish pilgrims from all around the known world coming back to Jerusalem in order to celebrate Passover. They're going to have the currency of the country that they were a part of. They come into this particular place in order to pay the tax and they find themselves being charged crazy commissions in order to simply get what is necessary to do what God had called them to do. That's happening right there in the court of the Gentiles. These money changers were charging this commission. 
And it wasn't like it was going unnoticed. According to historians, this was a part that was sanctioned by the high priest, a guy by the name of Annas Caiaphas. It became known as the Bazaar of Annas, named after this greedy high priest. By the way, Jesus is going to stand and be tried before Caiaphas in John chapter 18. So one part is that people were being swindled when it came to money. But another part is they had to have their sacrifice that they're offering. So they could go around Jerusalem and they could find appropriate sacrifices at many different places. But the issue was they were coming right now into this place. They would bring it before the temple inspectors. And many times the temple inspectors would say, it's not able to be sacrificed, but I got a friend right over there. You could go buy a replacement one from him. Now, once again, they're being held by the temple priests, the temple inspectors. So now think about the people who are actually selling the sacrifices. According to historians, the same guy, Annas Caiaphas, sold it like franchises to vendors. He charged a huge, hefty price in order to have a table set up, but then he would also charge a portion of the money that was made at that particular table. And many times those sacrifices were 25 times more expensive than the ones you could find around town. The merchants were getting rich. The money changers were getting rich. The priests were getting rich. And the people were caught between all of it. Hard-working people are being swindled in the name of God. And all of this is happening in the court of the Gentiles. Remember what the purpose was to be. That was a place that people could come if they wanted to know about who God is and have hope and understand him. They could go and see that God is loving and just and gracious and honorable, but they walk there and they see his priest being dishonest, greedy, heartless, and unrighteous. Do you remember how things ended on Monday where Jesus walks into the temple, he looks around, and he walks back out? It doesn't tell us what he saw. It doesn't tell us anything he said. It doesn't tell us about his frustration. All we know is on Tuesday morning, he walks back into that exact same temple and he starts flipping the tables and driving them out. And then here's what he says, verse 17. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations? but you have made it a robber's den. Did you notice the two categories? My house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. That's God's design. But you have made it a robber's den. That's their deception. Design, deception. So now we're ready for our third scenario. Jesus' authority is challenged. This is found in chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Jesus' authority is questioned by the religious establishment. Well, that makes sense based on the story. It was the religious leaders who allowed the temple merchants to set up in the court of the Gentiles. It was the religious leaders who were swindling people in the name of God. So when Jesus comes in and he overturns the tables and he runs the money changers out, he was in essence challenging their authority, and they knew that. 
That's why they come to him in chapter 11, verse 28, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, who gives you the right to come into our temple and to flip our tables and to upset our process of making money? Well, instead of Jesus answering them, he asked them a question. When they refused to answer him, he refused to answer their question. So now the three stories are in place. How do they connect? How do they connect to the events of the week? They connect by the crowds. They connect by the crowds. So think of it like this. Crowd number one, think of the Romans. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, if you'll remember, the people shouted his praise. They, they called him Messiah. They hailed him as Israel's king. Their view was nationalistic, but it was no less sincere. But remember, the Jewish people were under Roman control. Now, they're talking about a king other than Caesar, and they're talking about a kingdom other than Rome it was sure to grab the attention of the Romans. Then you got crowd number two, that's the religious establishment. When Jesus entered the temple and he flipped over the tables and he drove out the money changers, his actions upset the religious establishment by challenging their authority and disrupting their schemes. They wanted to kill him. We know that based on what it tells us, chapter 11, verse 18. So now he's got the religious establishment upset. So we come to our third crowd, that's the people. In between the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, you have the cursing of the fig tree. Figs had special meaning in Old Testament prof prophecy as well as in writings. Figs symbolized Israel obtaining the promises of God. And fig trees were a symbol for the nation of Israel itself. We find that in Jeremiah 8, 13, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, as well as Nahum chapter 3, verse 2. The presence of a fig tree spoke of blessing and prosperity for the nation. The absence of a fig tree or the death of a fig tree symbolized judgment and scarcity for the nation. Israel had become like the hypocritical fig tree, all leaves, no fruit. In spite of the privileges, in spite of the opportunities, Israel was outwardly fruitless just like the tree and inwardly corrupt just like the temple. By cleansing the temple, Jesus showed Israel's worship is now unacceptable. By cursing the fig tree, Jesus showed the nation is being condemned as being spiritually fruitless. And that message came through loud and clear to people around. In fact, that message increased over the course of that week. It was inconceivable to the people that Messiah would condemn them instead of deliver them. That they had no use for a Messiah who wouldn't deliver them from Roman control and definitely no use for a king who wouldn't establish an earthly kingdom. Jesus' actions offended the third crowd, the people of Israel. So how do you go from being one of the most loved people to one of the most hated people inside of a week? 
you systematically offend every major group around you. His actions offended the Romans, it offended the religious establishment, and it offended the people of Israel. Now the stage is getting set for the cross. The most controversial and polarizing figure in human history has made his presence known and his positions known. The city is now a buzz about Jesus. What is he doing? Who does he think he is? Who's going to stand up to him? Who's going to stop him? So what do you think Jesus does after this? Do you think he hides? Do you think he apologizes to everyone for any misunderstandings that might have happened? Does he buy everybody a pony to make everybody feel better? None of that. According to what we find, Luke 21, 37 and 38, it tells us every day Jesus goes into the most prominent city of that area, Jerusalem, steps into one of the most prominent places in that city, the temple, and does one of the most public things you could ever do, openly teaches the crowds. He's not hiding. He's not running away. He's not backing down. In fact, he's adding fuel to the fire. Story by story, lesson by lesson, he is teaching people what they need to hear. For the rest of this day and for the next two days, Jesus teaches from the temple during the daytime, and then he goes to the Mount of Olives at night. Luke 19, Luke 20, and Luke 21. Now bear in mind, Jesus has been teaching for three and a half years. People have heard his lessons, they've heard his parables. He's been doing incredible miracles already. So if you've already been doing that, what do you teach if you've got three days left before your death? What, what do you emphasize? When you've already started a revolution with ordinary people, when you've already walked on water, when you've already taught incredible lessons, when people have been astounded by the authority of his teaching, when he's already offended and, and ticked off those who are in religious positions of authority, he's already talked with wisdom, like what do you say if you got three days left to teach? You focus on essential truths that people will need in your absence. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, about the importance of relationships, and about the events that will signal his return. That's the emphasis of his teachings over the next several days. So for the next two weeks, we're going to walk through the teachings of Jesus that happened days before his death on the cross. Now, I have pulled my information together from each of the four gospel writers as we walk our way through this. Generally speaking, did you all hear that part? Generally speaking, you will notice Matthew, Mark, and Luke will share the stories and the lessons that Jesus taught the crowds. Generally speaking, John shares the lessons that he taught the disciples one-on-one. -on -one. You get the crowds, you get up close and personal. There's a little bit of overlap, but you're going to get all of it over the next couple of days. So here are the first three parables 
that he gives. And, and these three parables, if you're not familiar with that term, parables are short stories that have a spiritual meaning, a spiritual truth. Uh, most of the time, these stories are linked together, chained together for stronger impact. And that's exactly what's happening here. Each of these three parables emphasize the kingdom of God. Now, in this case, we find that Mark and Luke share one of the three parables. But we also understand Matthew gives all three. So if you want to, feel free to turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, because all three of these are lined up. Here are our parables, but I need you to get this big truth, because if you get the big truth going into them, you'll be able to see the pieces come alive. Here is your big idea, key idea for this morning. The kingdom of God is comprised of those who obey his will, produce his fruit, and come on his terms. The kingdom of God, that's what all these parables are about. The kingdom of God is comprised of those who obey his will, produce his fruit, and come on his terms. So here's the first of those. It's the parable of the two sons, found in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. In this parable, there is a dad with two sons. He tells the first son, go out into the vineyard and work. And that son says no, but later the son regrets that decision, goes out into the vineyard and does the will of the father. Then the dad tells the second son, go out into the vineyard and work. That son says yes, but then chooses not to go. So Jesus now asks this crowd who's listening, he says, which of the two sons did the will of the father? And the crowd says, the first one, and he agrees. But then he says something that would make that crowd scratch their heads. Like, I don't understand what he's saying here, but he's got a point. He says, sinners and outcasts will enter the kingdom of God before you. <laughs> Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to self-righteous religious people. And he's saying, the sinners and the outcasts will come into the kingdom before you. Now, it's not the fact that God loves one group of people more than he loves another group of people, but his answer goes back to those two sons. You see, the sinners and the outcast heard God's will, rejected God's will, but later came back and obeyed God's will. They are son number one. The religious people heard God's will, agreed to do God's will, and then decided to do something completely different. They're represented by son number two. So now what's the point? Here it is. Obedience is better than verbal agreement. Did you hear me? Obedience is better than verbal agreement. A lot of people will agree with God. They agree with God on points of morality. They agree that there is a God. They agree that God is righteous. They agree with God on a number of things. They just don't know what he says. By the way, in 2,000 years, religious people hadn't changed a lot. I mean, if you hear our verbal affirmation, we're strong. But our obedience sometimes looks like a dumpster fire. We're, we're quick to say, I agree, that's biblical, that's right, this is good, that's in the book. The issue is, do you obey? Remember what Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? 
It's one thing to talk a good game. The issue is, are you going to obey? And that's the issue he's coming back to in this parable. We talk devotion while living distracted. God is not fooled. Obedience is better than verbal agreements. So now we have parable number two. It's the parable of the vine growers. This is found in Matthew, Mark, as well as in Luke. So Jesus finished the first parable, and he says in chapter 22, verse 33, listen to another parable. Now, I don't know about you, had I been in that crowd, I might not have stuck around for round number two. I didn't like the way the first one made me feel, but this crowd stuck around. So he shares the second parable. The story is that of a wealthy landowner who purchases a field and he planted a vineyard. The landowner built a wall all the way around the vineyard to protect it from animals and thieves. He built a wine press to press the grapes out into wine. He built a tower so that they could watch for marauders as well as provide protection and shelter for the workers as well as a place of storage for the seed. Like this, this landowner has provided everything necessary for the vineyard to thrive and produce fruit. Now, once the vineyard was ready, now it says in the story that he passes it off to a group of workers And he says, you work the fields and you give me a portion back of what's in this field. So they agree. The landowner leaves. Now it's harvest time. The landowner comes back and he says, sends three servants to say, would you give me now the portion that is due? And according to the parable, it says that the workers went out and they beat one of his servants and they killed a second servant and they stoned a third servant. So the landowner sends back another three and the same thing happens. And then the landowner sends his own son. And he says, surely they will respect the owner's son. And yet they killed the son. And at this we now find that Jesus asked this crowd the question, when the owner comes, what should he do to the vineyard workers? And their response was, he should kill them and rent out the vineyard to those who will give the fruit he requires. Chapter 21, verse 41. Now hearing their response, Jesus talking to this self-righteous religious crowd, he asked a puzzling question. He said, did you never read the scriptures? (laughs) What do you mean did you never read the scriptures? This group was known for reading the scriptures. That's like asking, has Elizabeth Taylor ever been married before? It's like asking like, does Michael Jordan, have you ever seen a basketball? Like, of course. That's what this group prided themselves in, was the reading of the scriptures. So what's the point he's trying to make? He says it in the statement. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Oh, listen. This is where multiple stories are all converging at the same time. Jesus is quoting from the exact same psalm that the people were praising him with when he entered triumphantly. It's Psalm 118. When he walked into the city, 
They praised him by his messianic title, Son of David. And now that same Son of David is being rejected by the religious establishment. And he drops a bombshell in chapter 21, verse 43. He says, the kingdom of God is taken away from you. In other words, the owner is back and he's got some management changes. So in the parable, God is the owner. The Jewish people are the vineyard workers. God has given everything needed to thrive and to produce spiritual fruit. But when God wanted his spiritual fruit, he wanted righteousness, he wanted holiness, he wanted obedience to his commands, they rejected him. God sent his servants along. He sent prophets to get their attention to say, come back to me. And the people rejected some, and they stoned some, and they killed some, and he sent more, and the same thing happened. And then he sent his only son. And they're in the process of conspiring as to how to kill him. So now the question becomes, what is God to do? And he tells us. He takes back the vineyard of the kingdom and he opens it up to others. Here's the point. The kingdom of God will produce spiritual fruit. God will find someone out there who's willing to be serious about the kingdom. He's going to find somebody willing to work the fields. He's going to find somebody who desires holiness and desires spiritual fruit. That is the purpose of the parable. Now we have a third one. It's the parable of the wedding feast. Believe it or not, the crowd stuck around for a third parable. And once again, the focus is on the kingdom of God. The Jewish people believed that God's kingdom was reserved for the Jews and for a handful of Jewish proselytes, those who were not Jewish, but came into the ways and the religion of Judaism. So here's the story. It tells us a king prepared a wedding feast and he sent out invitations for this. It was a wedding feast for his son. Select guests were invited, but these guests, they declined. The king got word back out to that same group of invited guests. He got word out through his servants that that there's already been a meal that's prepared. The animals have already been butchered. Everything is now ready to celebrate, but they paid no attention. Instead, they go back to their lives, to what they're doing. And it even tells us that they seized some of the servants and mistreated them and killed others. Well, the king is mad. So he sent his armies to destroy the people in their cities, chapter 22, verse 7. And then he tells his servants... Go out and invite anybody to come to the wedding. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter where they're from. You just go out and invite anyone to come and to be a part of this. And when the invitation went out, people responded. The palaces filled. People are everywhere. And this king comes in and he sees the crowd and he's pleased. But then he sees this one strange dude that catches his attention. And this one dude is standing out there, and he's not dressed for a wedding. This is important. Sometimes those parts of the story are like, I don't understand why that is important. I'm just going to skip over it. It's important. It's in there for a reason. So whenever he looks and sees this man, he goes and he asks him, why aren't you dressed for the wedding? And the guy doesn't respond. There's no reply. There's no apology. 
There's no excuse. So the king ordered his servants to bind him and throw him out. And the last words Jesus gave in that parable are found in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay. This parable is pointing out a problem that exists to this very day. You have to culturally keep the pieces in your mind of, of what a wedding was then as opposed to what a wedding is today. In ancient Near East, a wedding feast was inseparable from the wedding itself. A normal one would last upwards of a week. A royal wedding could last three weeks, a month, or even longer than that. So the invitations would go out on two different levels. There were people who were pre-invited, and there were people who were just invited. Like just before the wedding. Have you all ever been in one of those situations? Like you're over there and you're like three weeks out. Like, oh my goodness, I forgot to invite so-and-so. And you slide it out like, ah, this thing might've gotten caught in the mail. Anyway, whatever it is, you got pre-invited and you got just invited. To receive a pre-invitation to a wedding at the palace was an incredible honor. These people were envied because they had the favor of the king. But now the actual day came to celebrate and they didn't come. And so the king did something that most kings would never do. He goes back and he invites them again. And it, it tells us, he says, I've prepared a feast. The animals have been sacrificed. We're ready to celebrate. Please come. And they don't come. They go back to their normal lives. So then he gets word out to anyone. He just expands it out. General invitation. Anyone is now able to come. So as he sends out the general invitation, it tells us in chapter 22, verse 10, good people and evil people showed up. Let me tell you what this is not teaching. It is not teaching the kingdom of God is comprised of good people and evil people. It is teaching that those who think they're good and those who know they're not, they both need to be saved. So what about this dude just hanging out without wedding clothes on? Like what's going on in his story? It's important. This is crucial for redemption and relationship. He was included in the general invitation. And since everyone was invited, there would have been many people who did not have wedding clothes. The invitation would have gone to poor people. It would have gone to those who were beggars. It would have gone to those who were sick. It, it just went out to everyone in general. But because of that, there's only one guy, one guy who is standing out as not being clothed in wedding clothes. And it grabs the king's attention because it would indicate the king has made provision for the wedding clothes. Watch the connections. Watch the connections. When asked about his attire, the man was speechless. He gave no excuse as to why provision had been made for him to go. Provision had been made for him to go. And he rejected it. He ignored it. He did not honor the king. He represents a type of person. It's the person who presumptuously stands before a holy God. They have received a gracious invitation from the king of glory to come to the wedding feast but they're trying to come on their own terms. 
They're trying to come clothed in their own righteousness. They're not coming in the wedding clothes that Jesus is going to provide for the guests. They are presumptuous and they are self-willed. Their actions reveal something about them. They have no honor for the king himself. Do not be fooled. Many people say, I want God, but they want him on their terms. They want him at their level. They want him in a palatable version. They want a tamed down lion. They, they want someone who's not going to be as offensive to their sins. The issue is he doesn't come on our terms. He comes as he is. He provides the wedding garments we need to attend this incredible celebration. For those who accept his provision, there is a wedding and a celebration that is coming in the future. For those who reject it, here's what it says. There is suffering and separation that awaits. The kingdom of heaven is given to those who come on the king's terms. Tuesday is now over. And Jesus returns to Bethany, Matthew 21, Mark 11. But the craziness of this week is just beginning. He emphasizes the fact the kingdom of God is comprised of those who obey his will, who produce his fruit, and who come on his terms. It's one thing for people to say, I want God. It's another thing to want him as he is. Obedience is better than verbal agreement. The theme of Palm Sunday and Monday was worship is happening. The theme of Tuesday is the kingdom is at hand. I want to pause for just a moment. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you say, I know I'm in the kingdom, remember this entire series is not about Bible information. It's about knowing the word because it helps us know him. So now I want you to process those parables in the presence of God. Take those parables this next week and just say, God, am I walking in obedience with your will? Am I producing spiritual fruit? Am I coming to you on your terms or am I trying to get you to be formed into my likeness? I also need you to know when Jesus first started his earthly ministry, the very first phrase of the first message he ever preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the very end of his earthly ministry, guess what he's talking about? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There might be people in the room, there might be some who are watching online right now that you are like the crowd of 2,000 years ago. You are investigating him. You're inspecting Jesus. You're interested in his teachings, but you're not sure, is this whole Christian thing true? Is it real? I want to encourage you, bring those questions to God. Bring them to him. Be serious with this. I also need you to know, you might have never heard anybody say this, but God loves you. And he died on the cross 
to have a relationship with you. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, here's my three questions. If not Jesus, then who? If not God's offer, then what? If not now, then when? Will you repent of your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ? I'm gonna ask you if you would to bow your heads with me as we close. Heads bowed, eyes closed. No one looking around, I want to specifically address that, that group of people who are not sure or that they know they don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. For that person, I, I want to give you the gospel again. It, it's summarized very quickly. We were created for relationship. Sin separated our relationship. There was nothing that we could do to make it right ourselves. Jesus did what we could not. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead three days later that we might have life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who are willing to turn from their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. If that describes you as to something that you want, I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer. This is between you and God. I can't save you. My words cannot save you. This is Jesus has done what is necessary to bring salvation. You're simply agreeing with God in prayer. So if that describes you, that you desire to know that you have been forgiven of your sin, that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, pray this between you and God. God, I know that I've sinned. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. That he rose again three days later. And as best I know how, I turn from my sin by placing faith in what Jesus has done for me. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you give me eternal life?